those Nordic guys, I think they come out of the womb on skis. You know, it's 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 pretty crazy. There are some healthy people up there. You know, zero temps and, and minus digits. So taking a dog sled for an hour. Sometimes you have to run alongside the sled when the snow gets deep, and then try and hop back on the, those tiny little tracks. You're down to minimum gear, and you you run alongside. Then you get there. You're putting snowshoes on. Hiking up a thousand foot incline, trekking four or five kilometers. So here he comes, man. He's coming at me like a freight train. So I went to turn around and I don't want to back up per se, you know, or give my back to him. And I fall and the camera hits me in the sternum. 18 rams came 20 feet from us, sat down, put their heads in the ground and started snoring. Literally snoring right next to us. Last year we had 18 wolves howling under an aurora. Even if I didn't get any pictures of it, I just did video at 100,000 ISO pushing it in the dark. I'll, I'll never ever forget that. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed, your wildlife photography and outdoor adventure podcast. Today, we're coming from several time zones. We have Ron in... In Douglas, Wyoming. How's it, how's it today in Douglas, Wyoming? Has the it's heat nice, let up? It's nice to be inside in Douglas, Wyoming. We've All had right. We've had a nice mix. We had some tornadoes last week and... Nice, cool weather, and now we're back to the 100-degree dry heat. I, I don't, so I'm not sure if I would say it was a nice mix if you're talking about tornadoes. At least from where I sit, I'd rather avoid those. But I'm glad <laughs> that everybody was okay and weathered that storm. Yeah, for sure. And we have Michael in... I'm in Anchorage, Alaska, Anchorage. where it's perfect. It's, uh, I don't know, my watch says it's about 61 degrees, and... It was raining last night, but woke up and the sun's kind of coming out. It's just a perfect day here. I think it's always perfect in Anchorage, Alaska. You know, I think we you're should right. just skip that over. After being there for two weeks and flying back home two days ago, uh, I have to say the weather was awesome there. And one little rain spell, that was it. We were lucky, but man, I'm envious of those summer summer temperatures. Yeah, the day after you left, it rained all day. I was trying to shoot yesterday for that assignment for for video and it just was pouring. So I didn't even go out, but I got a lot of office work done. So that's good. And today our producer, Missy is in Denver, Colorado, recording and working on this podcast as we talk and roll along with it. And I am in Ontario, Canada, where it is humid, hot, humid, scorcher. Thank goodness for a new AC unit on the house or the office and uh, missing an Anchorage and that nice breeze off the ocean. But at least it's a sunny day here and uh, enjoying being back with family and, and friends here in Ontario. So I want to take a moment before we kick off in today's podcast and just remind all of you, subscribe, follow along and show us the love. Uh, hit the thumbs up when uh, you've finished the podcast or the five star rating, because those reviews help us to continue to bring these podcasts to you week after week and share our passion from the field. So Ron, I'm going to hand the baton over to you. I want you to introduce our guest today, and I am so looking forward to today's podcast and learning more about this man's successful career and adventures as a wildlife photographer. Take it away, buddy. Yeah, so today we have a guy that I was fortunate enough to go shoot with down in Florida two years ago, two springs ago. Charles Glatzer is a guy that uh, I've admired his work for a long time. There's a photo contest and kind of festival in Casper, Wyoming, and I've tried to talk him into bringing a wildlife guy. It's sponsored by Canon, 
Charles is one of the names that I always threw out uh, because he is, he's not just a, a person that takes pictures of wildlife. He is an outdoorsman himself, like the, the three of us. And his background, photographic background is very diverse. Charles is a canon explorer of light. And I'll, I'll let him here in just a minute kind of share with you what that means. It's a lot more than just being a, a great photographer. There's a lot more to it. So, Charles, welcome. Thank and you. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and just give us a, a quick background. Ah, quick background. <laughs> it's been 35 <laughs> years. First, let me Sum say up thanks. 35 years. Yeah, you got 35 30 years. seconds Thanks for less. inviting me, guys. <laughs> I, I appreciate it's that. nice to meet you. Thanks yeah, for coming thanks. on. Yeah, so 35 years. I originally went to school for marine science. And while I was looking around for a job, uh, my girlfriend at the time said, hey, there's a carriage trade studio in New York that's looking for somebody to assist on the weekends for weddings. So I sort of got into that and said, you know, I really love this. In high school, I worked in a camera store and, you know, classes in the darkroom in high school. And that kind of fired it off from there. So when I started from that, it all just kind of took off. Never really looked back. So we started doing uh, society parties uh, on the Gold Coast of New York. And then I started doing portraits and then... We graduated from there. We had a color lab for a while. I did professional sports, and then I did underwater photography all around the world uh, in the 90s, did commercial stuff, advertising. It's It's been a pretty diverse, crazy career. So I think the strongest asset for me to bring to everybody that we teach is that diversity in my background. So whether it's studio lighting or whether it's you know infield or flash or whatever we're doing, um, we take all that culmination and try and bring it to the wildlife genre. That's impressive. That's one of the most diverse backgrounds I've heard. So, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and and I think one of the things that made me want to go down and shoot with Charles and attend uh, one of his workshops is the way that he talk about breaking down light. And your company, Charles, is called Shoot the Light. And I think you know from what you said and and from conversations that we had while I was there. Your background in studio photography is actually what helped you to make the jump into wildlife and and to be able to shoot the dr real dramatic light that you're able to capture. Yeah, I, I believe that wholeheartedly. The best thing I think anybody could do as a photographer is work in a studio. You're building light from the ground up. There's nothing there. Essentially, it's a black hole. So we're learning quantity of light, quality of light, direction of light, you know, and uh, how that all kind of ties together. So everything that you see is a ratio. There's nothing that's just lit per se. Nothing is just, well, okay, there's light. It's all about, you know, the highlights, the shadows. How bright is one side of the subject relative to the other? How bright is the background relative to the subject? So once you start to see that in your mind, then you can interpret it and figure out what you want to do to capture that vision. But until you learn that, um, it's, it's a difficult task. And I think part of what we do is we expound upon that for students. So people come with us and we teach them to see, you know, what makes a good picture, what doesn't make a good picture, you know, what they're actually looking for. Uh, you know, you guys, everybody kind of got to the, that, that level has a, an idea with that. Mark sees it too. You know, you're shooting undulates or deer, you know, things like that with, with points and you're selling the hunting magazines. They want to see the points, right? So it's not about here's just the cock of the head. It's how many points can I see on the animal? So I'm waiting for that animal to cock to make sure I could see every time. That's what they want. You know, you're shooting an eight by eight. Well, you don't want to show it as an eight by six, right? You want all those points, all that stuff. So little subtle head angles. And I think what I did in a, in a portrait um, environment carries over to the way that I take portraits for animals. You know, we have masculine, feminine poses. So in the animal world, if you get a deer, 
you know, or a doe sitting in a field of flowers and she cocks her head to the eye shoulder. Subconsciously, that's a feminine pose. And when we photograph that, it transitions to the viewer. The viewer looks at it and says, oh, look how demure that is. You know, it's a female. You know, so whether or not we perceive it, you know, consciously, you know, in our in our mind's eye and, you know, through cultural uh, you know, aspects and things that we perceive, uh, yeah, it works. It definitely works. Those are, uh, you know, very specific and, and well-outlined perspectives of how to create the imagery, what you what you just said there. But at the same time, and I th- that's an advanced state, and you're right, 100%. You want to see those things. You want to see the times. You want the best angle that expresses or translates that mood to the viewer, depending on what your market is, whether it's a hunting magazine, whether it's a calendar, a book. And But what I want to take a step back and say is, is that's advanced, and, and people should look for that and aim for that. But first and foremost, and this is something that I know you illuminate to be funny here, is that light and understanding the light is paramount, right? Yeah. The yeah. shadows. I mean, so many people are just, when it comes to wildlife photography, jump off the gate and just start shooting as soon as they see an animal because they're excited about it. So few take the time to train their eye to good light. And that's something that you know, you clearly are an expert at, and I can see that on your Instagram feed. I saw that on your website. And I think that is one of the more challenging things for people to do, take the patience to learn light, and it's, then it's, to go to what you were describing as far as animal positioning and uh, mood. Yeah, or- I, I couldn't agree more with you. You know, when you first get to a location, the first thing we're doing is, is checking the lighting direction relative to the subject, right, and the background. So we can position ourselves accordingly to that, but you have to wait for the subject to orient itself correctly to the light before you depress the shutter. And that's what you're talking about. And the subtle, the subtle details, the small details, that's what's going to separate your pictures from everybody else's. And that's the key, you know, that little catch light in the eye, right? The positioning, all of it. So just as a quick example, we, we photographed loons, um, a family of loons probably for, I don't know, now it's 12, 14 years, whatever it is. And we have what's called angle incidence and reflectance, meaning if the light's coming right over my shoulder and hits a white subject, comes straight back into the lens, I have to close down to ensure detail in the highlights. But that makes the whole photograph dark, not just the, you know, the highlights, right? So if I get the light off axis and the light hits the subject, but some of it skips off to the left, I don't have to close down as much. So then my dark areas are brighter. So now I have the best of everything. Right, I have a little bit of side lighting, which is going to emphasize texture and detail in the feathers. And I don't have to make the exposure as dark to ensure I have highlight detail and shadow detail. And my dynamic range is, is captured. So, yeah, all those little things make a huge difference in the photographs. But like you said, you know, it's a culmination of 35 years, right? So you go out there and you're trying to teach in a week what took us, you know, you were telling me 25 years, right? A long time to do. And that's the benefit for people to take in a workshop, I think. You know, they, they get that experience in, in a small amount of time. Sure. I mean, it's a great launching point for them. And I think, you know, we continue to hone our vision, our skills. And, and to this day, you know, I'm always trying to learn about all these aspects, how to improve imagery, and especially in the digital medium and what we're capable of creating now with this technology. But, um, you know, I, I think if people really pay attention to light as a foundation, and it does take time, you know, it takes time and patience. And, and fortunately, with digital medium, they can experiment now. But, you know, within a year or two of shooting, they can develop that eye, that perspective, but they need to be patient with it, visually seek it out and look at photographers' work who do it well and how it's created. And as you pointed out, I mean, a workshop is a great way to start because you have the hands-on advice and guidance right there from somebody who knows how to interpret it visually. Get moving that way. If you look at like 500px and Instagram, 
Facebook, right? All those people. First, let me say this. If you don't look at that, I don't care who you are in the industry, and you're not humbled by what you're seeing, then you're an egomaniac. Those pictures are as good, if not better, than any working pro on any given day. You know, they might not do it as consistent as you or I can do, right? But it's there. You know, they have the ability. And I think part of that is because of the, you know, the digital what you see is what you get kind of instant, uh, you know, feedback. But, yeah, light is key. Light is key to all of it. And, and I think a big part of this is less is more. You know, guys will go out, you know, and the funny thing that they used to tell us is, you know, you shoot a roll of 36, you get five good ones. You know, well, you put a 128-gig card in there and you shoot 10,000, you're still going to get five good ones. You know, so no, you still got to learn what you're doing. And, and that's why I tell everybody less is more. You know, so these guys are shooting. I mean, I saw a guy shoot 100 pictures of the side of a barn. You know, and I, I said, what's the deal with that? You know, and he said, well, I want to make sure I got a sharp one. Well, that's just a lack of confidence. You know, that's, that didn't blink. You know, what's the deal? You know, change your angles, move around. And you were talking, people just get out of the car and they go to shoot pictures. We get the same thing. They go to shoot a waterfall. I'm like, you know, that waterfall has been there for a million years, right? Pretty sure in the next 15 minutes, it's going to look the same. Why don't you slow down, look around for different angles, you know? But yeah, they're so fired up, which is a good thing. You know, they're all enthusiastic about it. But yeah, take a breath, slow down, you know, observe it. One of the big aspects, and we'll probably touch on this, and I could run on for hours, as you can tell, is understanding animal behavior. You know, and the more time in the field, the more we understand animal behavior. The more we understand animal behavior, it translates into uh, us being able to be proactive, right? Anticipating and setting up for those particular shots and getting more successful images. That's another skill set that takes a lot of time and, and is makes a huge difference for successful wildlife photography. That, that's, that's the game changer is reading behavior and predicting it in advance, knowing the subject, what they're going to do, and to be in position for the best light angle to create that image. So yeah, you outlined that very well. One thing I love what you touched on there as far as people with digital mediums now. I mean, we were confined with 36 images on a roll of slide film. To be careful, to be patient, to watch the light, to watch for the catch light, to pick your angles. Don't waste it because you're paying for every frame. Now, you know, it's just a common trend to blast away 500 pictures and then, well, wait a minute, I just shot 500. Let me think about what I can do to improve this. You know, it's, it's this la lag in, in perspective. And I think it's so wise and experience uh, to suggest to people to wait, to be patient. You know, take a few if they have to blast right away to hear that sound. But then, especially in something that's going to be there, like you're saying, like these landscapes or waterfalls, wildlife's a different thing. You know, wildlife requires people just to, to take a breath before they even start sometimes to compose themselves. Otherwise, you know, they're not going to come away with the quality of images that they want because they're just too excited. The adrenaline is, is, is driving their photography, their lack of focus, right? So mm -hmm. you have to control that. And then the ability to, as you outlined, to predict animal behavior then comes, becomes key. Yeah, another big part of it is being able to, it, it's not just about what's in front of you, right? It's maybe, you know, 20 yards down the road, you know, there's a bit of clearing, there's something like that. So there's an elk up on the ridge and it's in dappled light, right? I said, let's go 100 yards down the road. So we go 100 yards down the road, exposed for the background. The elk's going to hit the clearing up in the, you know, in the, in the top of the canopy and we get a perfect silhouette. Well, how do you know what's going to do that? Well, you know, <laughs> how do I know it's going to cock its head? Well, when I bugle, you know, you know, there he goes. Cocks his head to us. Let's move on to something else. You know, you're walking. We're in Alaska. There's a bear. So the bear's walking through the swamp, and there's a log. And I said, focus on the log. Why? The bear's going to walk on the log. How do you know? What would you do? If you were walking through a swamp and there was a piece of hard substrate, would you go on it? Yeah, exactly. So you set up for it. And the more you can predict that, again, it's going to equate to better imagery. You know, it's the same thing with the light. So people are always asking, what do you do in dappled light? 
Well, does it look better in the sunlight or does it look better when the cloud's over? It looks better when the cloud's over. So wait for the cloud to come over. Why are you going to shoot both when I know it's not going to look, you know, like I want it to and I'm just going to delete it anyway? I've known you for 10 minutes and I want to go have some fun in the field and shoot with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we could have a blast. Yeah, I'm sure we could. Sure. I'm sure we could. I've seen your images. You know what you're talking about. Thank you. So, yeah. Chaz, as, as diverse as your background is in, you know, just photography, you, you've also got a very diverse portfolio as far as, I mean, primarily North American species, but you also have a, a trip coming up overseas, correct? Yeah, we're going to Botswana, actually, um, on the 5th. Yep. So, out of all the species that you've shot, I mean, we've all got our favorites. What, uh, what would be your favorite? Species my, my favorite places to go are the Arctic, um, the Falklands, and, and bears are my number one. So uh, actually in November, it'll be my 100th bear trip. So I've been been around bears, and we do black bears, brown bears, um, spirit bears, and uh, you know all of them, polar bears. And polar, yeah. 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 Right. So polar bears I've been doing since 2004. So, you know, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, you look at bears, they're all individual, you know, as far as physiology, as far as psychology, the way they interact with each other. And that's kind of what I was alluding to before we got online is that people always ask, well, why do you go to this location in Alaska? Well, it depends on the behavior. You know, do I want them slamming salmon? Do I want them, uh, you know, eating sedge? What do I want for backgrounds? You want a river with rapids? Do you want a glacier background? You know, what is it that you're looking for? And, and each environment, you know, and time of year is going to give us different photographs. So if, if that's what you're concentrating on, and since I have so many repeat clientele, I got to get them new venues as well. But to maintain my own interest, yeah. You know, I'm always picking different locations and looking for something else. And uh, bears just rock my world. You know, I, I just, uh, I love bears. And, and thank goodness, um, you know, I've, I've had my share, you know. Uh, I've been bluff charged once, and uh, that's enough to change your pants. And uh, I don't ever <laughs> want it to happen again. So you, you try and uh, look for those behavioral little things, you know, those little keys, and then dissolve that situation as, uh, as fast as possible. I love your turn of phrase. Slamming salmon and rocking your world, bears. I feel that. <laughs> I feel it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Rob Shepard said, you know, your problem is just not enthusiastic enough. Oh, no, I was going to touch on that, too. I was going to give you a few more minutes. Your, <laughs> your passion your passion comes across pretty quickly as well Thanks, as your knowledge. Yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's fun. It really is fun. And uh, penguins are great. You know, the worst that could happen with a penguin is you get, you know, and you get pooped on. So that's pretty safe. <laughs> <laughs> you put all your bad clothes on top of your luggage. TSA leaves your stuff alone. Yeah, exactly. It's a good hack. <laughs> Bag them up. Yeah, when you're when you're in Antarctica, you just set your bags down on the poop. But that's but the problem is TSA will leave you alone. But when you've got home, get home, it doesn't come off at that point, right? You can't. No, wash your wife it off. won't leave you alone. She's right. like, if you think that stuff is going to yeah. my washing machine, you're seriously wrong. <laughs> right. I've heard I've heard it's almost impossible to get that off anything. Oh man, it's bad. Yeah, right. I think I'd I think I'd rather deal with the TSA <laughs> <laughs> than the wife at home yelling at you. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> or the bag that's just dirty from then on, right? What do you do with that? Yeah. yeah. So Chaz, you you do a series of trips every year, and you're doing multiple species, obviously at different times of the year, which maximizes you know the behavior that you're looking for in the areas that you're looking to capture. About how many different workshops are you doing every year? Then we're we're doing on average eighteen, um, eighteen trips a year around the globe, um, which is a lot, you know. Uh, I, I say it every year. 
you know, I'm going to slow down. I'm going to slow down, but it doesn't happen. And part of that is, yeah, it's enthusiastic, you know, and when I see a new venue pop up, or we find a new location, you know, I'm just fired up to go do it again. So it's hard, you know, and uh, I, it's, it's a job I think I can continue to do as long as my health works. So my goal is to take people to the best locations on the planet. So we have to do our diligence, right? We have to research the time of year, the location, make sure that the place that we're going is reputable, you know, that the guides are knowledgeable about the photography. Otherwise, we have to teach them, you know. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes before I take people to these locations. And if we don't find wildlife, it puts me in a bad place, you know, as it does the lodge. They don't want that either. So it's wildlife. I mean, we can't be in control of all of it. But you could be, you know, darn sure to the best of my ability, you know, I'm going to do my research and, and, uh, and try and make it all come together. So, yeah, a lot of responsibility, um, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. We meet a lot of diverse people, you know, traveling around the world. And uh, I can't think of anything I'd rather do. I knock wood every day. You know how lucky I am to get to do what I love in my heart, you know, and I thank my family for, uh, for giving me that as well. You know, we're on the road about eight months a year, and it's a lot. It's a lot of time being away from family. So I'll challenge your goal on wanting to slow down because this is a lifestyle, right? Yeah. I mean, we love to do this. It's what feeds us. And I mean, maybe at some point I have this vision, you know, it's this age old vision of sipping lemonade on the porch and reminiscing over this life that we've been privileged to have as wildlife photographers. But do I really want to sit on the porch and sip lemonade? No, I want to go find <laughs> some more bears. <laughs> yeah. Right? yeah. So Ultimately. it's not, I don't see it happening. And if, if it happens for you in a way that's acceptable, Please send me the guidebook on how to do that <laughs> because I just see doing this forever because it's what I love to do. It's from one trip, one destination to another. And as you highlighted there, it's important to always find and explore new areas because that challenges us as well. As, as, as fun as it is to revisit old haunts that we've done many times and know the predictable outcome, you know, it is they are wildlife. They aren't always going to cooperate. But for the most part, we know what we can expect from a certain destination. Yeah. But to also challenge ourselves and go and do something new. I mean... I want to do uh, caribou migration in the northern Yukon, and I'd love to spend a couple of weeks and just intercept a massive number of caribou going by and film it from every possible way and potentially share that with people. That's not something I've done, but I can't wait to try it and to figure out the details. So it's funny you mentioned that. I was talking to a guy up there about doing exactly the same thing. So we were talking about the otters to fly the camp in and then having a helicopter you know, on standby. So it came out to for for a number of us about thirty thousand dollars a piece to get this thing off the ground you know to have the helicopter there every day to fly around and stuff so yeah if we have somebody else backing up our budget you know i i we're on the same path my friend i i think that would be something that would just be mind-blowing to follow the you know the arctic wolves you know chasing the, the migrating caribou and feeding on the you know the calves and stuff would just be you know uh, we better give our blood uh you know, samples beforehand because I'm sure we'll need a transfusion from mosquitoes. <laughs> There's uh, definitely two or three times, two times a year anyway. I'd love to have that experience. And and the ideal is how, how you describe it. I mean, if you have a helicopter at your disposal and you can relocate to be in position, knowing they're coming ahead, if you see them miles out, position yourselves, get dropped off, and then the herd comes, how perfect would that be? But there are there are other ways to intercept them that might not cost 30 grand. So we can yeah. talk about that uh, at some point as well. See a lot of That's hiking. what I'm hoping. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's hiking, but they do they do cross certain areas that are more accessible, but it may require patience as far as number of days of field, right? And, and if you're doing a workshop, that's a challenge because you have people that have committed X number of days. If it's something that we were to do just ourselves and say, okay, we're going to block off three weeks 
or even four weeks and be up there and just take what comes as far as wildlife and landscapes. The hope would be, you know, five or six of those days were in caribou heaven. So, so you, bring, you bring up a, an extremely valid point and one that's sort of frustrating for me. I had to come to terms with what my career is really about. So, yes, I'm a wildlife photographer, but I'm also a teacher instructor. More so. I happen to be an instructor teacher who could take really good wildlife pictures. Right. So until I came to grasp with what my um, mission is in life, per se, it was frustrating for me. Because just like you said, I know what I can do given the time, cooperation, to spend all that in the field back when I was doing the assignments. But with taking groups of six to eight to 10 people into the field, that luxury is, is not the same anymore. And, and I do miss that portion of it. You know, hence I was talking to you about the, the off the grid, you know, thing where we can only take four people. But, but that is a point. And that would be part of me saying that, you know, that slowing down part for the workshop part, to take the other part of this and to fulfill my soul again with what I know my capabilities are. Um, you know, as well as I do, if I take eight people to photograph a bear, that bear might act differently, probably will act differently than if it's just you or I out in the field. Now, that might be a good thing, right? We might not be in the food chain. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's, that's something that's to our advantage. But, but yeah, it is, a, it is a balancing act. You know, I don't care what job or what career you have. Everything is a give and take and a, and a balance within there. And, and until you can come to grasp with that, um, yeah, it can be a little frustrating. Yeah, that's that's definitely the case, and and I see the compromise in your position guiding, because it is that a lot of time frame, and so you do need these people that will fund it, and you know you dial it in, and hopefully everything comes together in that short period of time versus having those the luxury of more time to sit there, but then you trade off right because for me I'm building stock, I'm working freelance, and I have those weeks, but it has to come together, so I'm I'm more patient with it. Whereas if if the revenue is being sourced from these people that you're teaching and guiding then, uh, you know, it's a finer time frame, time frame and, and you have to have the, that access and therefore the funding to be quick to be where right. the animals are, right? So right. I understand that compromise and trade-off. And, and I, for what you're doing, has definitely equal appeal. It's just, uh, it's a different strategy and I recognize that for sure. We started a long time ago. So back in, I guess, geez, I don't know, early 90s, um, a gentleman and I started the first online nature magazine. So I told my wife, I'm going to take everything I know and uh, I'm going to tell everybody how to do it. And I had friends calling up who were not happy about that. You know, at that point, digital was just starting to take off, and there was a big disparity in what the pros were producing and what the amateurs were producing. And it was readily, you know, recognizable if you just looked at the work. So now with the advent of digital, with the advent of uh, uh, information dissemination across the web, right, um, instant feedback, you know, everybody doing workshops, you know, GPS tags so you can tell where the animal is at every minute of every day. Um, that gap is completely closed. So it's different. You know, it, it is a different genre. So I, I got in it at all the right time, you know, and people are always asking, well, how'd you develop that clientele that you have? And I just, you know, forethought and, you know, trying to put it all together. But what you're talking about from a business aspect, I think we get questions all the time from photographers, hey, I want to do what you do. It's a lot more difficult to try and start to do that now, I believe. You probably agree with me than it was to do it maybe when we were starting. And if you look at um, Art Wolf and you look at Mangelson, you know, those guys were running around before a lot of us was. They had the wherewithal. They had the, the ability to shoot it, you know, and those pictures, as good as they were, don't hold up to anything that we're shooting today. The compositions were there, but the camera capabilities and, you know, contrasty Belvia film, this doesn't have the dynamic range and all that stuff. So people will compare those two you know, and say, well, my pictures are better than what they were shooting. Well, not at the same time they weren't. 
You know, yes. I think, yeah, no way. You know, so there's a big learning curve, but that curve is now condensed. You know, where it used to take us years, you know, like you were talking about with film, now in, you know, probably in one year, you can get uh, pretty savvy and you could look at, you know, thousands upon thousands of pictures on the web and try and emulate what they're doing, you know, and, uh, and you do have workshops and everything else. So, yeah, it's a different world. You know, I'm, I'm happy for it. I think there's a lot more people out there now who are, who are appreciating wildlife, you know, and traveling around the world and telling other people about it. And we get to share um, uh, places and conditions that most people uh, don't want to go to or can't get to. You know, so uh, I, I think it's pretty, pretty amazing uh, you know, part in time for us. This photography evolution has been, has been mind blowing. I mean, none of us saw, saw the potential of this when it started to happen and switch to digital and swing and the accessibility to people. And, and I appreciate you taking the time just to, to mention that, yeah, historically, it was a bad thing to share information amongst professionals, your colleagues, your friends, of course, you know, but as far as the general public, nobody wanted to share all this information. And that has changed dramatically now. And that's the whole purpose of this podcast. You know, we want to share our experiences, our insights to, to educate people and to motivate people to care about these animals, to get into the field, enjoy what they can do in a safe and respectable manner and care about conservation. So it has swung dramatically from just working in stock and, and publications. And that has, I mean, I could talk on that. I'm not going to because you're our guest today. Um, this, this trend now to share information is kind of uh, a relief to be able to take people with us through our stories, through our communications, through our images, and through these podcasts. So, I mean, you're, you're a great guest as far as this is concerned because you're illuminating a lot of things. But I'll jump off this subject quickly because I'll I keep running on it. Ron. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you know, we could both go on about the stock industry and stuff like that. And, and there's a lot of double-edged swords out there. But I think for all of us who are sitting here today and, and hopefully for people listening, you know, you and I and other people who are doing this wildlife photography, we're stewards for the wildlife as much as we are for the photographers. We have to educate them you know, about ethical practices and how to approach wildlife and to do all these things. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people out there who are not doing that, you know, and, and that's bad for the industry as a whole. It's bad for the welfare of the subjects. Um, and I think that's paramount. You know, we have to have to be, be stewards and, and tell people yeah. to do, you know, ethical practices. Uh, Absolutely. Know? And it's not. It's so competitive nowadays that all these people care about is running around getting a picture, you know, and they trample this and they trample that. I mean, you like you were talking about before, you can you know, look on uh, Yellowstone's website any day and see, you know, who's getting mauled by a bison or, you know, attacked by this or that or something else, because uh, a lot of it is just naivete. You know, I think people come over and in their country, there aren't any wild animals per se, you know, so they come over here and they kind of have what we call Disney syndrome. You know, they just look at, oh, look, it's a cute little animal. And they walk over and try and pet a bison and bad things happen. They have the surreal perspective that safety in numbers. And so they can go forward if there's 100 people behind them. Right. And nothing's going to yeah. happen, <laughs> yeah. but it will. So, yeah, it's it's and we do need to be stewards that way. Um, so that's an important, important thing to point out. But there are bad apples no matter what. I want to remind people about this in our society, no matter what the subject of interest might be, you know, wildlife photography, nature, outdoors, conservation. But then if you jump to anything in society, there's always going to be a bad apple out there who's overstepping ethical boundaries and um, creating a potential bad name for those that interest group. So, you know, we're no exception. So people have to keep that in mind. There are going to be people who don't understand the animal behavior or what should be done. And they are not, you know, experienced wildlife photographers and do not represent our group as a whole. But we need to, in, in, a, in the best way we can, you know, make suggestions to them of how they should be interacting with these animals. I've learned that there are, there are 
two kinds of uh, photographers per se. There's there's wildlife photographers and those who want to photograph wildlife. Right? There you go. And the biggest difference is how much time we're going to spend in the field, you know, and understand behavioral aspects. A lot of guys want to photograph wildlife, so they're going to go to Yellowstone. They're going to walk five feet from their car, you know, and they're going to photograph whatever's in the field, jump back in the car, and move down the road to the next one. And they get pretty good pictures of wildlife per se. But the wildlife photographers are the ones that are going to be dedicated. They're going to take the patience. They're going to spend the time observing the animals, learning the behavior, you know, and all that. And and that's my goal. You know, it's to teach those budding photographers who enjoy wildlife to become wildlife photographers. Yeah, that's that's well put. And and that's and that's the kind of thing, you know, instead of stepping five feet from the car and getting a picture of a bison that's standing in a field that 500 other people have got, uh, by immersing oneself in nature in a way that's common sense is associated with it, you you have a guide or, or you have enough familiarity, you can do this, you will find so many other things that come up worthy of photographing and experiences that might, might surpass and are unexpected from surpass what your expectations are. You might go out during the elk rut trying to photograph a, a magnificent bull elk that morning, but stumble on something else that just is mind-blowingly good as far as a photographic opportunity for wildlife, right? And, and by immersing oneself in nature, they come out with a lot more. So if you look back at your career and, and memorable moments, it's you remember the experience way more than you ever do that photograph, right? Yeah, so the photograph is the you have record to just of the sit experience. Back, you know, yeah. and say, hey, you know, wow, look what I have in front of me. How lucky am I to see this? I hope I can capture it. So, yeah, for us, it's about documenting that and showing other people, you know, but, but you got to stop and breathe and say, look what we have around us, you know, and care about the experience. And, and I think sometimes that even means more to me. You know, I tell my wife, I go, yeah, I bet I could leave my camera home this time and just sit there and do that. And she goes, yeah, till you get there. <laughs> there is that, right? We all want to be pushing that button, but you're right. Some of my favorite experiences, you know, I've been in the remote areas of Alaska. I've taken my son, who was a teenager at the time, and we'd spent three hours with a group of bull caribou. They bedded down. So we sat down 100 yards away from them and just ate blueberries and looked at the mountains, looked at the clouds, listened to the sounds and watched the caribou. That was better than the photos. Mm -hmm. The photos are the key to my memory. You know, yeah, with, right. we have this privilege of having so many wildlife experiences. But when I see those photos, if I'm building a submission for a client, it's like, oh, yeah, that day, that was yeah, so special. Right. It unlocks it. And it's like my son, you know, we Andrew and I all oh, that was such a great day together. So I'll and share this one with you. We're up in the Canadian Rockies and we have um, a bachelor herd of 18 rams up on the top of the hill. And I told everybody we're going to go up there, but we're not going to push them at all. If they inter, you know, if they alter their behavior, even one iota, we're not, we're not moving forward. You know, I don't want to push them, right? I just want them to get acclimated to us. So we did that for three days. This is God's honest truth. The third day we sat down to have lunch, 18 rams came 20 feet from us, sat down, put their heads in the ground and started snoring, literally snoring right next to us. And I said, do you realize how privileged you are to see this? Last year we had 18 wolves howling under an aurora. Even if I didn't get any pictures of it, I just did video at 100,000 ISO, pushing it in the dark. I'll, I'll never, ever forget that. That whole moment was just spiritual. You know, and, and for me, those experiences, that collection of memories, that is exactly what you said. You look at the picture on the wall, you look at that video, man, it fires you off like you're sitting back out there. And there's no better feeling. It, that's it's, what it's all about. Oh, man. I, yeah, you know, I feel it inside right now. It's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah and that's... That's one of the stories that I was going to ask you about because you had shared that um, with our group down in Florida as well. And uh, the other thing that I was going to ask you about, I, I think you included actually one of the 
photos of yourself in the field um, that will be in the show notes. And uh, it was a trip that you just recently took. And I just, some of the comments that you made when you posted some of those images online kind of made me want to ask how it was, because I've always heard that photographing muskox is, you know, it's a fairly easy process. But uh, you said that it was a little bit more physically demanding than I would have expected. Yeah, a little bit more than I expected as well. Um, <laughs> the, the guy that we had grew up there. You know, and those Nordic guys, I think they come out of the womb on skis. You know, it's 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 pretty crazy. There are some healthy people up there. And uh, he's older than I am, you know, and he was able to, to climb up those mountains like like it was nobody's business. But we had to take dog sleds, you know, so maybe we're taking a dog sled for an hour, you know, and sometimes you have to run alongside the sled when the snow gets deep and then try and hop back on the, those tiny little tracks, of which I... I did not do three times and the dog sleds going forward. So that's a little bit strenuous on its own. You know, when you're talking, uh, you know, zero temps and, and minus digits. So it's pretty chilly. So, you you know, you're down to minimum uh, gear and you're, you're running alongside. Then you get there, you're putting snowshoes on, hiking up a thousand foot incline and then, uh, you know, trekking four or five kilometers to go find the muskox before we even take pictures of them. So, yeah, it's all well and good. And then you get up there, and if the weather turns, you're building an igloo because you're not getting out, you know. Yeah. So there's that whole thing. So for an individual, myself, hey, I don't care, man. It'd be great. But, you know, unfortunately, again, like we were talking about, I have the responsibility of taking, you know, six or seven other people with me, you know. So you got to make sure they're fit, you know, how they're going to handle stress and, you know, what's going to go on with them and everything. And um, I, it was fantastic. I'm glad I did it. You know, there was one point where I said, hey, all I have to do is get to that rock 20 feet away. You know, and then I get to the rock. Okay, all I got to do is get to that other rock 10 feet away. You know, and I'm <laughs> huffing and puffing, but I did it. You know, I did all the trips. And a couple of other people on the on the workshop with me did all the trips to the muskox. But it was physically demanding. You know, it was. And part of that's because of the deep snow and the conditions that we went in. But but that's what makes it great. You know, part of me wishes it was more severe. I wish that we had, you know, crazy snow conditions. Because I want to show people those animals in conditions they will never get to experience. You know, that's the drama. That's that's what drives me. It's not here's another elk sitting on the side of the road in pretty light looking at me. You know, I, I want that drama in the pictures. You know, that's what we all strive for. I'm going to Botswana right next week. And we want to see in two weeks what the people who live there want to see their entire lifetime. You know, yeah, exactly. whole, you know that they yeah. do see that. So it's serendipity. You know, sometimes it comes together. And again, we do the diligence. We try and go the correct time of year, you know, try and do our planning and, you know, dot our I's and cross our T's. And once in a while, it all comes together, you know, and uh, it's really cool. Yeah, it's really, really amazing. So, Charles, I'm the video guy here. How much video are you shooting with today's technology? Obviously, these cameras will do it all. Do you find yourself saying, man, I really, you know, I can capture that moment. But if I shoot a a video sequence, I can show that behavior in a better way. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah. Well, some, it's, might, it's, some might not say a better way. Some might say a different way. Okay. Okay. But, but well, yeah. sound so, and movement. So, so that brings up an, but an excellent point, right? And, and that's an internal struggle. I've been telling my wife for the last five years, I'm going to sell my stuff and start to do documentaries, you know, and I have Canon behind me so I can get the gear. And I think because we learn, the wildlife behavior, we learn the lighting and the angles. Then it's just I have to learn the technical aspects of, you know, the post-production or get somebody to do the post-production part. But, yeah, we have started to dabble in, in doing the 4K with, you know, the 1DXs and the Mark IVs and, and, uh, and some of the other stuff. And what we try and teach people on the trips now, too, is digital becomes an asset for us. 
So you could take 4K video and pull off eight megapixel stills from it, right? So if I'm going to shoot, you know, twice the frame rate, right, 29 frames a second, if I'm going to shoot at 60 frames a second for high quality video, that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is just flip the switch to video and shoot 4K. So if I'm going to freeze the subject, I could shoot 60 frames a second at 1600th of a second. So now I could pick that little definitive moment, right? So it's not 20 frames a second, or I can even do 120 frames a second if I kick it up to slow-mo. So that's a whole other world for us. And, and I think, fortunately or unfortunately, that's how it's all going to go. I think essentially what we're going to end up doing is, is shooting high-end um, video cameras. So when they go to 8K, we'll be able to pull a single image off that video at 16 megapixels. That's crazy. At a higher dynamic range than you can with stills, because we could shoot in C-log. So yeah, I'm getting there, man. I'm getting there. I mean, I, I feel you. And, and there's a point, point with, yeah, we're capturing one still when I can show a whole behavioral aspect. You know, and I think it's a logical progression, and there are a lot of wildlife photographers who do eventually go there. You know, I met Paul Nicklin up, uh, up in um, uh, British Columbia doing some stuff with sphere bears, you know, and he was, for the first time ever, dabbling with a red camera. You know, same thing, man. So there's a guy who does stills all his life to the nth degree and saying, you know what? Yeah, there's something to this. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you. You probably get some requests from your participants about the video aspects of things, don't you? Not as much as you would think. I, I'm the instigator with it. I say, hey, guys, have you tried this? You know, and then they're like, I don't even have a clue. How do I do it? You know, so we have to sit down for a couple of hours and go over it. You know, most of them just think you flip the video and shoot away. You know, they have no idea about frame rates and all the other stuff and, you know, white balance. And you better be shooting this this way or that way. Um, good thing with the Canon equipment is it has that dual pixel autofocus. So you can actually track and, you know, um, you know, the subject and stuff like that. And if it's big enough in the frame, it'll do a really good job. You know, you can put on facial recognition and it'll, it'll track a bear's head, you know. It is pretty amazing. I, I choose the camera based off of how close we are going to be. Because if you can use that autofocus or if you need super low light, right. Canon's the way to go. Yeah. Sorry, you Nikon guys. No, nah, no. Nah, well, yeah, I think they still have the advantage in, in that particular <laughs> venue. You know, the other thing is, like, we were teaching them instead of doing, uh, um, uh, like, like changing your focus, right? You know, for, for, for depth of field, you know, or, or um, I forgot, I'm just kind of missing it here right now. But we use ND filters. So I can lock on my subject at F8, right, now, or F4, you know, if I want to blur the background out and put an ND filter in there. So if I'm in shutter priority or aperture priority, you know, then I'm going to go to 22, right? So I'm going to pull the background in that way, you know, staying focused on the subject rather than doing a focus pull. That's where I was going, you know? So I'm going from one to the other. So yeah, there's a lot of really cool things you could do with the, with the video that you can't do with the stills. And part of it for me has always been the, the, the methodology, you know, and, and what it takes to get the pictures, even more than the pictures sometimes. It was always about the process. And, and magazines and bios have always asked me every time, how do you know when you became a good photographer? And for me, that was a simple answer. It's when I could see the picture in my mind first, which is imperative. You have to be able to see the picture in your mind first, right? And then employ the tools and techniques to capture that vision. Well, when I fire the camera and the back of the camera continually looks like the picture I had in my mind, I know I got the process down. But now we take it a step further. So now we go into the post-production end of it, right? And we take what we have and we even make it even better, you know? So it's, it's a whole really exciting time for us. And, you know, like Mark was saying before, um, did I ever think we would be here? If you ask me how they still get all those pictures on that little flashcard, I'm still baffled. I don't have a clue, man. 
I thank the guys above and the stars that they were able to do it. But I, I don't know. We could change ISO for every picture. You know, you used to have three freaking cameras with you. You know, and I, it's just, it's a whole new, crazy, exciting world. And where it's going to go, I can only imagine, you know. It's so dynamic. And I think it's going where we've been fantasizing for the past 15 years and uh, that you suggested it's going to be high-end video that we can pull stills from eventually. Yeah. And that'll be that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I remember Red was talking about pulling 200 frames a second off of there. You know, it didn't go anywhere as of yet. You know, but I'm sure, you know, there's 8K cameras out there. You know, and uh, yeah. I mean, I looked at that stuff on, on these 8K monitors and you can't even see a pixel on there. It's crazy. It's sharper than we are. It's freaking scary. <laughs> not to promote camera envy but mike does have the 8k red <laughs> yeah there you go man yeah and yeah it's a very diverse tool yep yep but but like you said you know it's 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 the same thing with digital cameras which camera should i get what do you want to do with it so it's picking the right tool for the job you know if you want to do landscapes and you want to do things like that i think the 5d4 you know if you want to shoot wildlife and you need the burst rate and things like that then you need a 1dx so it's a difficult question you know there are guys shooting aries out there you know, there are guys shooting C500s and C700 cannons and, you know, guys shooting reds. And it it's depending upon, you know, what they want to shoot. I mean, I've Absolutely. seen BBC guys where they'll tell them, hey, this is what we want. And they have to go rent an RE camera because none of the others will do it. You know, we want this particular look to the photograph. So now we get this particular lens. So it's, it's see the vision in your mind, pick the right tools for the job, you know. Well, and in today's world, you can pull out your cell phone, depending on what camera you have, and you're producing stuff that, can run on broadcast television very yeah. easily. And if if the the best camera is the one that you have with you, everybody yeah. has that with you, right? So you can yeah. capture and show the adventure extremely easy nowadays. Yeah, there's guys doing it for B-roll stuff all the time. Yeah, yeah. I want to encourage listeners. I mean, the cameras that you're listing are all impressive, and there's certainly a, quite a dynamic range and its price point and its and its market and, and where you're going with the, with the product. But... As far as what the smartphones can do now, anything for social media, I want to encourage our listeners to start playing with that. You know, you can do slow mo, you can, and um, you can shoot it in 4K or whatever uh, resolution you want. I mean, all those settings there, you can adjust the white balance, and you can work with it in easy to use apps like iMovie. Afterwards, you can assign a music profile to it. There's so many things you can play with on a phone to get going now. And you know, the still, new you phones, know, it's, it, it's taken such a huge cut out of like the. The consumer point and shoot cameras, you know, so people are looking at these, these cell phones and stuff and, and yeah, they're good to a point, you know, and then the next logical progression is, you know, you know, it's kind of moving up the scale sure. things that have, you know, um, you know, kind of got the G line, you know, and things like that, you know, where um, quality is a little bit better and what you want to do and stuff. But yeah, yeah, I social media is mind blowing, man. I mean, you you can't hide. You know, everything's on there. It, there's nobody who's safe. <laughs> sure. Alexa's probably listening to us now. I don't know. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> so you have done a ton. What are those places and what or what are those species that you think are on the horizon for you? I mean, obviously, you look at your portfolio and you've done so much. Is there anything out there where you're like, I really want to go here or I really want to see this? I, I love that high Arctic stuff. You know, we were talking about doing that caribou thing. So that was kind of up on my, my radar. Um, I always wanted to do muskox. So we did the muskox and I didn't want to do them in the summer. I wanted that, that winter experience. I love cold weather. I just gravitate to cold weather and something about snow and graphic content, you know, and uh, I don't know, just the conditions and stuff just kind of floats my boat. But we're looking at doing Madagascar. Uh, we were looking at doing uh, Borneo and Komodos. 
you know, dragons and things like that. And it's not that nobody's ever done them before. I mean, if you look around, I don't, I don't know what you can think anymore that, that hasn't been done, you know, but um, something I would like to experience. And if I could take other people with me and share that experience, that makes it even more enjoyable. So, so yeah, there's some things. Um, what's on the horizon for me a lot is trying to spend time with my, my uh, five-year-old granddaughter. And uh, we're lucky enough in September, we should have another little girl on the way. So um, we're looking forward to that. I don't know if Mark fly fishes, but every waking moment I'm not um, on a trip, I'm trying to fly fish. So that's my downtime. That's my solace in the field by myself, you know, where I kind of get the tranquility and, uh, you know, can uh, look inside my own head and, you know, kind of kind of ground myself a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I really like that. So when you uh, come up to Alaska and you're out at Lake Clark, are you running up uh, the Silver Salmon Creek to, with your fly rod when you got time off? Well, when I was up at uh, up on the Alagnac, I uh, yeah, I brought home 50 pounds of sockeye, and we're catching 24-inch rainbow that I definitely wanted a picture with. And unfortunately, when I, I went to lift it up, the hook straightened right out and popped back in the water. So I was like, son of a. But anyway, so yeah, we were catching uh, grayling and char and rainbows and you know, yeah, sockeye and uh, there were some kings around, but I didn't go play with them. So, yeah. Yeah, they said you're a fly fisherman with a, you know, photographer in the forefront, but but secretly you want to just, you know. So I, I kid with my wife. I said, man, it'd be a lot easier for me to hump a fly rod around the world. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah, it's fun. I mean, I, I absolutely love it. You know, and, and the same thing with photography. I think it's about the technical aspects. So it's not just, you know, plunk and dunk kind of thing. You know, that salmon thing, that's not fly fishing, man. That's, you know, kachunk, you know, and you're, you're you know, just kind of hooking them up. But uh to do the technical aspects of, um, of fly fishing, I think, kind of equates to what I like to do with the with the wildlife photography, you know. And uh, it's I, I'll tell you a quick story. So I went up to uh, to a place in the Arctic. I got invited, and I was up there for um, for almost three weeks, right? And most people go there for four days at a time. That's the only time in my life I've ever um, got to see what other uh, photographer groups would do, right? So I couldn't say anything. I couldn't say, hey, by the way, how come nobody's talking to them about how to expose for polar bears, right, before they actually go out in the field, you know, and they're spending, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. How come nobody's talking about this? How come nobody's talking about that? So I called my wife on the, on the sat phone. I was like, I am frustrated beyond belief because I'm seeing all these people. This is a once-in-a-lifetime experience for a lot of them. And what about the due diligence? These, I can't take it. So I, it, it was tough, you know, it was really tough. And I love taking the pictures, but I almost love seeing the guy next to me who's on the trip, taking a better photograph than I did and seeing him get elated and him going, oh my God, I got this, you know, and, and I got it all together. And that fires me up. I mean, I know I could take a good picture at this point in my career, but to see somebody else doing it, you know, and to give them the ability to teach other people, for me, that's what it's about. It's it's the experience of being out there and seeing these other people get fired up, you know, and I've been, been, like I said, I, you know, I, I knock wood every day, you know, it's just, <laughs> I don't even know. I, I sit on the couch, you know, and I think about where I've just been and, you know, I get tears in my eyes, you know, I really do. And then five days later I get tears in my eyes cause I got to leave my family again. So yeah, it's, it's checks and balances, you know, it's all good. So Ron, Ron was asking about the, the Canon Explorer thing for me. Um, that meant more than winning a photo contest. You know, the photo contest is one picture. It's really cool. I think people who win those contests, it's totally deserving of merit, and I'm all for it. 
you know, but the, the accolade bestowed by saying, okay, you're a Canon EOL, that's kind of like a lifetime achievement. And Ron was asking, well, what's the program really about? It's a mentorship. It's about me teaching other people what I do. And that's what the program is about. So here's somebody who's good at what they do, who has the ability to teach others, who happens to use Canon equipment, and we appreciate very much. And, you know, we'd like to continue in that vein. And uh, so that's how you get on there. You know, it's not like I can call up and say, hey, I want to be an EOL. You know, they recognize who you are and they kind of come to you, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been been a huge benefit for my career and uh, and, a, and a pat on the back. And to be surrounded by, you know, 39 or 40 other EOLs who have all peaked their careers and to, to see that, it's mind-blowing. It's it's just, it's mind-blowing. You know? Congratulations. Yeah, that's what, yeah, thanks. Yeah, for sure. And that's what I was just going to comment on. I mean, when you started talking about your educational band, and um, that is really what kind of sets you apart, I think, is uh, your willingness to teach and your ability to teach. I mean, we were talking about Flash in the field down in Florida, and about two seconds you answered questions that I've been asking for a long time. So, yeah, that, that ability to just be able to put into words what that person may or may not be thinking, I think, is what really sets you apart. And and when you were talking about the education, I think that, yeah, that does bring it back full circle. You know, when, when you were introduced as a Canon Explorer of Light, it's it's a lot more than being a good photographer. Because there are people out there that, quite honestly, I see some of the Explorers of Light. And there are, there are people out there that are as good at getting the photograph. But they're not the, you know, they're not the person who can also educate and have somebody else, you know, increase their ability to, enough to do the same thing and i think that's what sets you you guys as a group apart thank and, you uh, yeah yeah i appreciate that i mean I, I i know people who you know i i think they're much better photographer than i am but i wouldn't have him teach my dog you know he shouldn't be around people you know i mean it's just he doesn't have the ability to do it and a lot of people say oh i'm going to do workshops you know they think it's just this great all thing and then they do it you know for a week or two and say i can't do this man i don't have the people skills or the patience to do it you know so you don't have it's it's more than just a photographer, you know. You have to have the people skills, and you have to be able to deal with stress, and you have to be able to, you know, yeah, yeah, and in multiple personalities, and so yeah, it's uh, it's got its pluses and minuses, you know. Um, just again, like everything else, and uh, it's 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 great, it's great, you know. I the teaching aspect for me, there are no secrets. What I know, you know, you know. That's the reason I'm there, right? That's the reason you're you're going on my trip is for me to teach you things. So I think some of the people don't do that because it's maybe a confidence thing. I don't want that guy to be as good as me. But I think if you're a true teacher, you want that person to be as good as you. I'm not worried about it. It takes me eight people in the world to fill the workshop, eight people. So if you're worried about, you know, the competition, then you're not doing something right. You know, if, if you're good enough and you, you treat people with the same respect you want for yourself and, uh, you know, and you're sincere in what you do, then hopefully it comes back to you, you know, and, uh, Learned a long time ago. Just treat people with the same respect uh, that you want for yourself, and you don't have to look over your shoulder. Life is good. So, and yeah. I think it's far more gratifying to share. Yeah, I 
Seriously. And with the experience, you know, we've got these vast portfolios. I mean, at this point, it's it's just far more fulfilling to share that with people and to motivate them. And and what you were alluding to as far as personalities, that's affected all parts of the business. You know, I've known lots of very good photographers who couldn't break into the business because their personalities just weren't there. I mean, they were too egocentric and they would butt heads with a potential editor or, or whomever the client might be. It just wasn't, they weren't marketing. I mean, that's part of it. So understanding your client base and making the, creating the best experience for them is what you're all about. So, you know, and, and being able to work with the people, the personalities, motivate them, make them feel happy, make them feel like, and, and appreciate the experience at the end of the day, or even in the moment, say, wait, 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 check this out. Think about this. We're here right now, tomorrow in seconds, it's going to feel like in seconds, you're going to be back home, yeah. right? Immerse yeah. yourself in this and, and to continually remind them of that perspective. I mean, that's where the teacher is paramount and that's where the workshops succeed right is in that that sharing and that and that opening their eyes and and, and but keeping them in these different personalities in a happy place yeah for them yeah exactly know? so right. that's a that's definitely a skill set and, and you definitely have it from everything you've said today yeah i appreciate ron you know to your insight um i forgot that you even came uh came to saint augustine with us you know so you you do have a particular insight into uh, sort of what i'm talking about and to hear you say that you know to me as a participant, there there's no better testimonial that I could receive, you know, from the people who go with me. And we sure. have we have like I think last time we did was like ninety something percent repeat, you know. So it's great. I've had people come on, you know, fifty trips with me and I've I've thanked them for single handedly putting my kids through college, you know. So uh, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. You know, from a business perspective, um we we in order to make this all work, all of us now have to have multiple venues, multiple revenue streams, you know, kind of coming in. And and I think that's key, particularly for the guys who were who were really into stock. You know, I was talking to Ron the other day about, you know, we used to pull an X amount of dollars and that's nowhere near what it used to be, you know, and as as an editor or a picture buyer, you know, they they punch on Facebook or Instagram and say, hey, we're looking for an Osprey and a Nest, you know, and there's hundreds of pictures that pop up and they see one they like and they call that guy. And that guy just happened to be out there on the weekend with his with his point shoot camera, and he's got this this image that's mind blowing, you know. And and you know they they grab it, you know. So yeah, it's difficult. All right, Sorry, semi man. semi jokingly, we're gonna have to cut this segment out in case any editors are listening. <laughs> I'm gonna get All right? fired up. We'll, yeah. We're gonna tip the people on how to get better pictures, but our editors still need to know where they need to come for the for the stock. <laughs> yeah, they do. <laughs> so listen. No, it's it's all out there. It's all budget nowadays, and it's just it's, ease yeah, of access. Exactly what it is. If they want yeah. ease of, of quality access time and time again, if they want that professional image in, in the next 15 minutes, then it's worth a budget to do that. If they right. have time, then they do what you say. And you know they all call up and say, we needed this yesterday. Right. You know, and yeah. I'm halfway around the globe. Can you get it to me tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> so I sent, I sent, I don't want to mention the magazine. So they asked me about this picture they saw, and it was the first wraparound cover ever for the magazine. Nice. And they said, hey, can you send us a JPEG? Okay, yeah. So I sent them a JPEG. They're doing a mock-up. It's two months later. I call them up, and I say, uh, so I guess you decided to use something else. What do you mean? It's already in print. I'm like, well, didn't you need the big file? They're like, oh, no, it looks great. I'm like, I send you a small JPEG, man. Why did I buy this big camera and the best lenses money could buy? And they said, oh, we love the photograph. And I looked at it, and I was like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, you got to be kidding me. It doesn't look anything like with, you know, what it could have been. Aha, I was going to shoot myself. What size of file was it, if you remember, if I can ask? I, I don't remember. Like, it was like, geez, I think it was like a thousand pixels on the longest side. Oh, no kidding. Know? Okay. Risky business then for print, right? Yeah. 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 But, I was just, 
But that, uh, yeah, that's the same as what I send out to my clients. So when they ask for something that's around a thousand or twelve hundred yeah. or something or fifteen hundred, and, and that's just meant to have it be visual eye candy. If they the want to run with it, yeah. then then they get the fifteen or twenty megabyte file, right? And then yeah. <laughs> Jeez, I'll never forget that. If anybody asked me where I would be at this point in my career, you know, thirty-five years ago, I would never have predicted it. Never, you know. I mean, I always liked hunting and fishing going up, you know, and we camped and stuff like that. But the deviations in my, you know, in my career and how I got to this end, you know, the teaching part of it started um, on the underwater um, venues. So I would go on a Peter Hughes boat, an aggressor boat, you know, and start to do underwater photography in the 90s all around the world and Skin Diver magazine, Discover Diving, all that kind of stuff. And uh, people in the boat would always ask me what I'm doing. So I said, you know, what if I fill the boat with wannabe photographers, at least the boat myself? You know, I think that could be a little bit more, uh, you know, economically viable than, than trying to sell these underwater pictures. And that's how it started, you know. So then we opened the magazines and that was, you know, kind of a catalyst to me opening Shoot the Light. So, yeah, it's just right time, right place, you know, and, and kind of everything came together. Um, so it's been fun. I mean, it's it's really fun, you know, and I enjoy it. And, you know, a lot of the people that come on these trips with us, they're they're more friends now than they are participants or clients. I mean, you know, they come over my house and they stay and, you know, try and talk them into fly fishing when they're here, of course. <laughs> but but we have we have a lot of fun. So, um, you know, thanks, man. Yeah, it's it's I love sharing it. Well, I think one of the most important things you, you said earlier is when you get a person out there and you get them to get that shot, it's the conservation aspect right now that per that person is a ally for that species forever, right? Because they have this new relationship. And that's what I think we need more of in today's world. Yeah, we're dispelling myths. You know, every bear is going to eat you. You know, it's the same thing. We're on the ground with polar bears. Sometimes we're 40 feet away from them. You know, oh, how could you do that? Every polar bear is going to kill you. Not every polar bear is going to kill you. Not every shark is going to eat you. You know, all this stuff. Spiders just dump dump out of the ceiling and land on your neck and bite you. You know, I mean, all kinds of crazy stuff. And, uh, yeah, <laughs> you get the Terminator guy coming to your house. So, so anyway, um, yeah, it's just, you know, that's that's the fun part. You know, so we just had people who haven't been on bear chips ever before, you know. So my suggestion is, hey, let's go to someplace like uh, Lake Clark, you know, where the bears are basically habituated to us, you know, and you can get close and um, you learn about the behavioral aspects, you know. But I, I can't talk about that enough. You know, I've had encounters with moose and I'm real careful with the moose, you know, and you, you watch the ears and you watch the head drop and, you you know, you're watching every sign to make sure it's intent on looking at the other bull and not at you. But it happened to me, you know, all of a sudden he said, well, I can't mess with this big guy anymore, but that guy looks like fair game. So here he comes, man. He's coming at me like a freight train, you know, so I went to turn around and I don't want to, you know, back up per se, you know, or give my back to him. And I fall and the camera hits me in the sternum and I fall to the ground. And I tell everybody I called uh, crawled up in a, in a fecal position, you know, rather than a fetal <laughs> position, you know, and and lucky the you know, the, the moose stopped, you know, like 20 feet away. I said, okay, well, I guess this situation diffused and walked away. But the best part of it is I'm in the Millennium Hotel having breakfast, and somebody comes over to me and says, you that photographer? And I go, yeah. And they said, you see the guy get charged by the moose yesterday? And I said, well, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, I hope it doesn't end up on YouTube. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're stewards for the animals, and we try and do things right as, as best we can all the time. But, uh, you know, wild means wild, you know, so – Stay safe, guys. Well, Chaz, I don't. Do you have anything else that you? Yeah, like let me ask you something. On? So, so where do uh -oh. you guys see the mirrorless technology going? 
What do you think? I think I'm it's a, there. I, yeah, it's, I, everybody's ready. Why? Weight and size, I think, are a big part of it. I think, honestly, to me, that's that's the only reason. Uh, you can shoot, you know, it's a lot quieter, obviously, because you don't have the mirror. So for wildlife, that's an advantage. But the problem is with the DSLRs as far as uh, focus speed. So your 1DX Mark II, for instance, you've got you've got a chip in there that does nothing but operate the focus system. And the mirrorless cameras, because they are limiting the, the size a lot more, they haven't been able to really do that yet. Um, they haven't been able to really catch up with the focus speed. So you, as far as a wildlife camera, yeah, you can shoot quiet. And it's a lot lighter if you're packing it in the field. But at the same time, if you're not getting, you know, a bird in flight, if you're not able to focus on that bird in flight that's moving, you know, fast and requires, you know, 2,500th of a second focus speed, I think that that's a limiting factor for them. And I think a lot of them are, are starting to catch up with that. I, I think the technology is just about there for a lot of it. I think there are some competent manufacturers out there who have technology that is there that can only get better. And the two big players are, you know, uh, hopefully going to come in that venue pretty soon with us. Most people I talk to all want their own, their current lenses, their DSR lenses to be applicable on a mirrorless body. So the only way to do that, right, is to put an adapter on there to keep the lens further away from the, from the sensor. So it kind of defeats the purpose for them. Now they have all the heavy lenses, but, you know, they might have a, a little bit lighter gear. So we see a lot of people come on the trips who, are not quite sure yet, and they have both. So they want to get weight savings, but now they're humping a full DSLR system and a, and a, and a compact system with them. You know, right. and some of them are four-thirds, those are even smaller, but, you know, everybody's kind of jumping up to the, you know, to the, to the full frame and the 4K and all that kind of stuff. And for me, I think the biggest aspect, and I'm seriously looking forward to all this, is it negates the micro-focus adjustments because now we're focusing off the sensor. So there's no more of this little bit of, well, you know, the quality control is not exactly where it should be. And, you know, there's this and that mismatch between the lens and the camera. So we don't have to go through that. And I think the mirrorless cameras are producing images that are capable of grabbing all the resolution that the lenses should be, you know, uh, should be able to give you and, and, and afford you. And it's it's remarkable technology. And I, I do think that it's going that way, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I hope, uh, I, you know, I get to be on the forefront of it. You know, like I said, you know, uh, without mentioning names, both of those big manufacturers are uh, hopefully headed down that road, you know, and we, we will see that come to fruition pretty soon. Guy, a pro that did switch and loves it. And it's what he shoots for uh, Sports Illustrated, lots of golf stuff. And what he can do as far as the frame rate, too, he can get 20, I think exactly. it's 20 frames a second. And so what used to take three or four tries at getting a golf swing he can do with just one try because you're shooting so many more frames and no mirror blackout. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the big thing right now that's holding it back, I think for all of us is the EVF, you know, electronic viewfinders, you know, and uh, when they step those up to the point that they look almost like reality, you know, and there isn't any lag, you know, and all that kind of stuff, then yeah, I think it's going to, it's going to go. But if you look at all these manufacturers, you know, putting uh, time and effort into this stuff, yeah, it's going to come, you know, but of course it's going to require all new lenses and, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. I think most of the manufacturers now um, don't have the bigger guns, you know, and that's what's, you know, uh, holding a lot of people back from, from the wildlife aspect. You know, yeah, they have one sure. to 400s, but they don't have anything bigger, you know, although we can take our Canon lenses and, you know, and pop them on, uh, 
on other bodies. And I've been shooting with an M5, a Canon M5, you know, which is a little bit lower now. They had the M6s and, and some of the other ones. And the quality that comes off that thing, it's it's unbelievably sharp. I mean, I got pictures of like albino alligators and, and some stuff that I've taken with a 600 on an M5, tiny little body the size of a pack of cigarettes that will seriously blow your mind, you know? So it's here. It's here. And, and as that progression happens, I'm seriously looking forward to it. There's a next step for us, Mark. You know, it's, uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. I haven't dabbled in it yet, but I could see it being very useful on workshops because if people are starting to bring them out, you need to be up to speed and be able to yeah. coach them along and all the technology, right? So that's a whole other thing for me, right? So, so I'm a Canon, you know, in uh, quote EOL, but we get people who bring all the other manufacturers, you know, all of them, including mirrorless cameras with us. So I have to be adept and abreast of all that technology. You know, not necessarily can I delve into, you know, 42 different sub-menus of some of these cameras. I mean, it's like you got to be a computer genius to get in there and figure out where all this stuff is. But but I still need to, you know, be able to tell them, hey, look, you know, do this and that and talk about, you know, the big dilemma. Everybody wants to know back button focus versus shutter button focus. And all pros use, you know, back button focus and Oh, yeah, I could tell you five reasons why you shouldn't use it. You know, so we go back and forth with all of that. And This and one doesn't. Me. Yeah, I, I, I don't. I thought I, I was the one. Yeah, amen, brother. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> I don't. So here, here's two, two seconds of why I don't. If you have the subject moving from left to right and you're using back button focus, your thumb has to be pressed on the, on the button to focus the camera. In order to move the focus point to another area in the viewfinder, what do you have to do? You got to take your, your finger off the back yeah. button. Now move the focus point. Now go back and acquire focus. Well, those fleeting moments, as you and I both know, that's the difference between getting a picture of a lifetime or not getting a picture at all. So if my finger's on the shutter button, now I can take my thumb, move the focus point to wherever I need to and continually rip off pictures. So as long as I don't need to stop the camera from focusing, right, then I'm on the shutter button. And I turn my AF on to AF off. If I want to stop it, I just push and hold that button in. But if I'm doing portraits or I'm doing things like that, little weddings and stuff like that, Landscapes, yeah, back button focus rocks. So it's not the end all. It's which better methodology works for the given situation. But you'll get people out there who tell you, oh no, if you don't use back button focus, you're not a professional photographer. Okay, I'll argue. Thanks Amen. for telling me, man. You know? yeah, I need that speed. Animals are moving left to right from me all the time. So that's it. Uh, yeah, what do we know? But what feeds this man is adventures in the outdoors, just like the three of us. So as much as we all have this traditional retirement perspective in mind, no, this, this, there's way too much going on in the wild world for us to want to be out of that, out of that picture. So, so until something physically stops us, right. it's not going to happen, right? No, and that, I love the muskox story because I live for the effort in correlation to the image. Those images that require that kind of effort, that commitment, that arduous experience, those are the ones that resonate with me the most down the road. To you, it doesn't necessarily, by the right. way, mean that it resonates <laughs> for the other people. No, so I, you know, yeah. as a stock photographer, right? You right. could send those pictures in. They don't want to hear you lost three fingers and blah, 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 and all the other crap. Picture has to stand on its own. But yeah, personally, in my own heart, I agree with you guys a thousand percent. You know, it's the experience, man. And that's what drives us. And, and that's what keeps us coming back. And uh, I, if you watch the videos that have been produced, you know, with me and them and stuff, at the end of every one, it's exactly what I'm saying. You know, it's it's that 
it's it's that yeah. experience and i'll yeah. check myself and i'll also say that if i was leading a workshop for people with caribou i mean i've had people call me on this and said please do this and i'm like well what are you envisioning you know are we tenting it are you hiking are you up to hiking 10 miles you know what is your dream experience and of course as you well know you get all different answers and so whatever that particular workshop is how will it be successful how much physical uh endurance is required and can this group of people pull that off so that they're actually happy at the end of the day? And, and, and for what you're saying, I just want to check that because, yeah, if I'm in the field myself, I love the fact that I'm drained at the end of the shoot and I'm sore and I'm tired. But those images are there. They required that effort. But, yeah, on a, on a workshop, it's a different template where you want to make sure people are happy, having a great time. But the challenge for you is to also have a measure, measured experience where they're going to come away with the images they've, they've pictured in their minds, as you pointed yeah, out. Yeah, it's managing right. expectations. Exactly. Right. So yeah. the biggest question yeah. we get is, when Bounce. do we eat again? You know? so. When do we eat again? <laughs> right. Well, the blue the blueberries are at your knees. You can so pick my them as we like, walk. You know, people people want to eat on your trips. I go, I don't care if I eat all day. You know, it's not about you, right? So I'm like, right. yeah, but look what we got in front of us. You know. Exactly. So. Yeah. So yeah, I I get it. That's I fun. get it. And, and yeah. Kinda- I, I, yeah. I can I can appreciate the fun of working with people, and I'm sure, especially your repeat clients, you know, are totally about the same experience that you feed your soul, yeah, because it's, it's about that experience. But yeah, there's I'm sure there are those, and I've heard this from other colleagues that that run workshops. You know, and you get the odd person who just wasn't ready for it. But but then I, I without naming names, it's kind of on them because they need to tell the person before the trip, the client. This is what to expect. This is right. what we're going to be doing. If you want the images, so you've seen my caribou, for instance, just hypothetically speaking, if you want that image, this is what it's going to take. And if you are up to that, that's what you're signing up for. you know. And if you just want to do sea otters at the dock, well, we can do that. And that's going to be easy because we're going to have you know, fresh salmon barbecued for dinner, right? right. Yeah, exactly. What are you looking for? You know? Did you ever and, teach and a class in Photoshop or post-production? I have not taught a class in Photoshop. I have been taught by some great people in Photoshop. So you get, no matter how many times you put a class up and you say, okay, this is an advanced class on compositing and masking and whatever else it is. And these are the criteria that we need to get there. When the class starts, those 20 people, there's such a diversity in the level that here you go. Oh no. You still have to deal with it all. So how how do you deal with that when you get it does that happen then? So when you're on a, on a trip, you're doing a workshop with bears, or you're on the ground, and, and, and despite you outlining it very clearly, as I'm sh- confident you do, somebody says, oh, yeah, I'm going to be fine with that. But they're not when they get there. And it's so remote. You know, it's not easy for them to pull the plug. They just can't get back in their car. How do you handle that with somebody? I mean, it, I guess it's just every situation is different. You've got to. Yeah, you handle it as best you can, you know. And, yeah. and what you're trying to do is is allow them to do uh, push to the point that they feel comfortable. You know, I, I don't want them stepping over that boundary, you know, or not feeling safe. You know, it's like the bear thing. All I have to do is outrun you. You know, well, yeah, go ahead. You know, the first person who runs is the first person who gets it, right? So so the request <laughs> for me is at least face the light so we all get great pictures of it, you know, but, but the reality is, yeah, you know, but you can't have somebody sit in a cart, you know, like at Lake Clark and everybody else is, is 100 yards away photographing a bear. You know, that's just not a safety factor, you know, so... And, and some people won't tell you all of it, right? You know, we've had a gal who want to do a spirit bear trip, and unfortunately, she needs a lot of help. And I can't devote all my time to helping one individual carry her gear, you know, and when I have six others to, you know, to administer to. So, yeah, we try and feel it out. I mean, I've had sure. guys, I've had, this is a true story. I've had people call up, you know, and say, hey, by the way, yeah, I got a 1DX and a 600. And I'm like, oh, okay. 
you know, so just like scuba diving, what I should have said is, well, how many pictures have you taken with it? Because we get on the trip, the guy's taking it out of the box, you know, and I'm like, ooh, it's going to be a long week, you know. So yeah, picture, most, picture that like a, it's a tool. Think of an auto mechanic showing up. He's going to work on your car. Yeah, I got to get this expensive car and he pulls a wrench out of the box. Yeah, it's exactly. like, oh, I'm feeling really comfortable about this right now. Exactly. Yeah. Right? It's about, yeah, so. it, that's just a tool for what we're doing. Right. 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 And that comes back to like what you were saying before with the cameras. Right. So we're talking about all these super high end, you know, and expensive cameras. But but the reality is it's the same methodology. Pretty close. If if we picked up a film camera, we're still watching light. We're still watching direction and quantity and, you know, and all that kind of stuff and animal behavior and everything else. So so I don't um, degrade anybody for whatever equipment they have of with them. Not. You know, I mean, I don't care what you have with me. I'm going to show you how to make the most of what you got. If you have yeah. a one to four hundred that don't expect to get a headshot of a bird in flight. You know, but you could certainly do animal scapes or environmental type pictures just as well as anybody else. You know, so it's about the tools that you got with you and about expanding people's knowledge. Everybody buys a 600 and sleeps between them and their wives for the six months. Oh, it's a nice lens, you know, and it costs me all this money. You know? <laughs> yeah, I, have never, reality, I have never done that. You have never done that? I don't huh? know what that crazy talk's about. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What did John Shaw say? You, you have to pick six reasons and it can't be lens lust. You know why you <laughs> right, need that? right. No, I had a crib. I had a children's, a child's crib beside the bed. It was never in the bed, no matter what you hear. Well, yeah, it's just, yeah. You got to have goals. <laughs> so. Right. And, and, and with the workshops, again, I think what resonates with these people, they want that image. They want to be able to do that canvas when they get back home and be able to tell the story. And you want to, you want to allow them or give them the tools, the experience to collect that image. But it's more just to have them walk away feeling the richness of where they've been and what they encountered. Regardless of what they photograph, if they're not having a good time, do it, you know, doing it, it's not going to work. I mean, you know, it's, it is about that experience and, and, you know, we keep saying the same thing, but, but yeah, that's just as important as coming back with the photograph. You know, when we do a moose venue, well, you're hoping the moose show up, you know, and for two days, the moose aren't there, you know, so I'm looking around in the store, you know, for a moose hat, you know, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, you're praying that those moose are there. But if not, you know, what are we going to do? Okay, so there's plenty of things I can do on the computer and teach them post-production, visual skills. You know, they're, they're there for that duration and that particular time period. You know, it's up to me to make it productive regardless of the weather or what happens. You know, and uh, it's, it's fun. You know, and uh, I'm, I'm, I, I feel real comfortable in, in what I do, you know, about teaching people and helping them. And, uh, again, you know, if I see them get fired up or their pictures are better because of, you know, the post-production portion of whatever we show them or the visual skill portion or here's a technique in your camera you didn't think about. Hey, man, it's really, it's fun. You know, it really is. Nothing else in the world I'd rather do. Nothing. Maybe fly right. fish a little more. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I hope that, uh, you, you guys have anything else you want to cover? I got because... six more hours, man. We can... Yeah, okay. Well, we're going <laughs> to truncate this podcast. We're going to go into part two, part three, and part four. <laughs> No, yeah, I'm sure we could. A lot of fun and very informative, and I, I totally feel your passion and energy. And uh, I want to thank you for taking the time because I think that resonates through us and, and to our listeners. And it's been a lot of fun hearing your stories, and I hope we can do this again. Yeah, I, I do too. And, I, and like I said, you know, Ron, thanks for reaching out, and I appreciate meeting you guys, you know, and have a lot of respect for uh, for both your careers and, you know, and uh, and what you've accomplished. I mean, Mark, I look at your pictures, and I'm just blown away by, by what you do, and you could tell how much time and effort you're putting in there. You know, and uh, I hope to see more of your videos. You know, I'd like that. And if you ever want to talk about, you know, I don't know if it's lucrative enough for you, you know, but to to, to teach those budding uh, digital, uh, you know, SLR 
video guys. Before I go to Lake Clark, I'm usually the only person that's shooting video. I think it's just because people don't know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's great. You know, so yeah. You're the one humping around the satchel tripods and the big heavy heads and the high hats. And yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're still carrying all that gear. Plus, <laughs> right? Even know. more than we used yeah. to carry. Yeah. But so. you're a lot younger and stronger than I am now. So, yeah. yeah. I've watched him do some hikes that just blew my mind with what he was able to do up over the mountain for doll sheep with that red on his shoulder. And it's like, I don't even carry the tripod, you know, a lot of the time. And so, yeah, very appreciative of, of what he has to pull off. And yeah, Michael would be a great one to educate people about uh, shooting video. Yeah, Mike, I saw a guy in Yellowstone Absolutely. on cross-country skis doing a BBC shoot. So he's got a, you know, a red dragon or a red weapon on his shoulder with a 200 to 400 Canon lens. And he's just skiing there like it's nothing, man, the whole day. And I'm like, holy cow, how could he do that? Yeah, I think I'm past that. I don't know if I could. I don't have that in my legs, but I'll make it work. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Well, you appreciate, you know, the end product, you know, and, uh, and you know, other people do, uh, you know, um, the viewers looking at it. So yeah, we're all pretty fortunate, man. There could be a lot of worse things we could be doing with our, with our careers and our lives. And, you know, knock wood every day, gentlemen, you know, and I appreciate meeting you guys and uh, hopefully we can hook up, you know, next time I'm in Alaska or something like that, it'd be, it'd be great to meet you in person and uh, grab a beer or two. That sounds great. I'm so all for that. We can uh, do a follow up after your Botswana trip yeah. just in our show notes or something. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Whatever, whatever, anything you guys want to talk about, man. I just, I, I love giving back, you know, and uh, I, I talk to people online all the time. I say, hey, you know, have you tried this with your picture or that with your picture? You know, if I can help, I'm there. I'm always there, you know, whatever it is. You guys, uh, you know, it's all about networking and, and getting the word out. So, uh, yeah. Well, keep keep living and sharing the dream, buddy. Yeah. You're doing you. a, clearly doing a great job at it. And our listeners can see uh, more of your work, the vis some of the visuals on our show notes at wildandexposed.com. Just click on the WE podcast page and you'll see it on there and uh, follow along. And thanks for tuning in. And until next time, and hopefully in the future for Charles again next time, uh, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the great outdoors and pick up a camera and who knows what you'll encounter. Cheers. Cheers.